0: Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning. This passage begins the formal account of Saul's reign as the first king of Israel. But before we read together from... God's Word, I I need to do something a bit unusual. I need to talk to you about an issue of translation. There's a translation uh, textual issue in this passage. It concerns verse 1. Specifically, the numbers given for Saul's age and the length of his reign. The Hebrew of verse 1 is very difficult to understand. It's difficult to translate. So much so that most translations depend upon the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to try to make sense of verse 1. So, if you read from the New American Standard or the NIV, the numbers that are given in verse 1 will be different from what you're going to hear me read here in just a minute. And that's because our translation that we follow here at Midtown, the English Standard Version, the ESV attempts to make sense of verse 1 as it stands in the Hebrew text. So, If I say anything else, it just gets a lot more complicated than what it already sounds. But I hope that that's enough to clear up at least any initial confusion uh, that will come as we read from this passage. And let's do that now. Let's let's turn our attention to this key moment from Saul's life, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through his inspired author. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horan, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness." Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear, Found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you for your grace in revealing Yourself to us in Your Word and in Your Son. We thank You for Your grace in opening our eyes to see the truth of the Gospel in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for opening our ears to hear the good news that Christ has come to save sinners. We thank You that You have been at work, Father, from the very beginning of time until now, calling a people to Yourself, remaining faithful to them, overcoming their foolish disobedience and working out Your good purposes. We ask, God, that that grace would continue now and that You would continue to give us ears to hear, that we might know truth from error and believe what it is You have spoken in Your Word. Father, please give me grace to speak faithfully and accurately from the Scriptures and give Your people discernment, God, that we might be built up in the faith and that Christ might be magnified among us. We ask this, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His glory. Amen. Growing up as a teenager, I spent my summers working in my father's machine shop. Which wasn't always fun, or clean for that matter. But it did teach me a number of invaluable lessons. And one in particular has stuck with me. I was running parts one morning in my dad's factory, which consisted of taking these small metal discs and putting them through a machine, and then measuring their dimensions when they came out on the other side. And these particular parts had an unusually tight tolerance. The measurements had to be right on or the parts were no good. Well, after about an hour, I noticed my parts were about a quarter of a millimeter off. To give you a re- some reference, a dime is a millimeter thick. So slice a dime in half long ways and then slice it in half again, and that's how far off I was. So I was technically outside the parameters, but not by much. It just didn't seem like a big deal. Certainly not enough to go get the foreman to fix it. So I just kept running my parts. Then my dad came by to check on how things were going. And my dad had this uncanny ability to find stuff that you did wrong. So he picked up one of my parts and he measured it. And then he quickly grabbed another part and measured it. And then he grabbed another part and he measured it. He went through my entire basket of parts and three quarters of them were scrap. I cost my dad about $4,000 that morning. If I wasn't his 14-year-old son, I'm pretty sure he would have fired me. He went through my entire basket. Three quarters of the parts were scrap. And it turned out that a quarter of a millimeter was a big deal. And that was the lesson. I assumed I could get by with being close enough To the standard. But when it comes to machining parts, there is no close enough. You either follow the requirements even down to a quarter of a millimeter, or you miss the mark completely. I thought about that day in the factory this week as I studied this chapter, 1 Samuel 13. This passage marks the beginning of Saul's downfall. Over the next three chapters, we'll witness a tragedy unfold as Saul makes a wreck of his kingship. It's such a wreck that God utterly rejects Saul in chapter 15. He rejects him as a person. But surprisingly, Saul's downfall begins in a small way. He doesn't completely turn his back on God in this chapter. Instead, Saul foolishly assumes that he's close enough to the standard. But when it comes to obedience to God, there is no close enough. You either submit yourself to His Word, even to the smallest degree, or you completely miss the mark. Friends, this is a message we need to hear. Saul lived at a different time and he faced different responsibilities, but the same foolishness that began Saul's downfall still shows up in our lives how often have we minimized our disobedience claiming that we've come close enough to meeting the standard? How many times have we assumed God can be satisfied with a half-hearted submission to His Word? Or maybe most convicting of all, how quick are we to turn away when we find God's commandments inconvenient for what we face at the moment? You see, that's the challenge of this chapter for us it confronts us with the reality that halfway obedience is really no obedience at all. And that disobedience of any degree has disastrous consequences. The question is then, will we listen to what God says in His Word? Or will we follow this same trail of foolishness that always leads to tragedy? Oh, how I pray God would give us ears to hear this morning that we might see again the wisdom of walking in His ways. As we look now at the chapter, you'll notice the passage divides into three scenes. The first scene gives us the context for Saul's failure, while the last scene shows us the consequences. It's the middle scene that's the key. And that's where we're going to spend... Most of our time. But to get there, we've got to see the context, and that's where we begin in verses 1-7 to with a troubling triumph. That's the first scene. A troubling triumph. As you can hear in that phrase, this opening scene is a mixture of good and bad, of triumph and trouble. Even as things go well for Saul, there are hints of darker days ahead. Notice with me how this mixture plays out in the passage First off, there is a military triumph. In verse 2, we meet Saul's son, Jonathan. He commands one of the divisions in Saul's army. And as will often be the case in 1 Samuel, Jonathan does something commendable. He's kind of like the foil to his father in these next few chapters. Jonathan does something commendable. Notice verse 3. He strikes out against the Philistine garrison at Geba. Now, some, some commentators see this as a foolish decision on Jonathan's part. Why provoke the Philistines to retaliate against you? But that reading misses the entire thrust of the passage. Remember, the Lord God had given this land to Israel and their job was to drive out their enemies. And what's more, Saul is the rightly established king of Israel, which means he has been given precisely this task to protect the people of God against those who, were, who would harm them. So when you put all of that together, it's hard to see how Jonathan is in the wrong. We should instead see this as a moment of triumph. Jonathan, who acts on behalf of the king, wins a victory for the people of God. That triumph, however, is small compared with all the trouble that follows. Like storm clouds on a sunny day, there are signs here that trouble is coming. It begins right away in verse 3 with a troubling lack of initiative. Jonathan's victory is clear, and yet the question dogs us, why wasn't it Saul leading the charge? Saul's the king, so why is it his son out front? It's nothing more than a murmur at this point, but still we're left to wonder, might Saul not be up to the task of leading God's people? That's not all. There's also a troubling hint of pride. After the victory, Saul rallies the people behind his leadership. But notice the report that goes out, verse 4. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now this could be nothing more than Saul getting the credit for what his lieutenant has done. But consider what happens later in Saul's life. Consider what we know of him as the story progresses. Saul craves praise. In in chapter 15, when Samuel has to rebuke him again, Saul doesn't ask for mercy. He asks to be honored before the people. And in chapter 18, after David wins mighty victories, Saul doesn't celebrate. He's jealous. This man craves praise. And that makes verse 4 ominous. Again, it's nothing outrageous or flagrant at this point, but still, it's a troubling hint of pride. Finally, there's a troubling spread of fear. Notice the Philistine response in verses 4 and 5. They're fed up with the Israelites. God's people have become a stench that must be eliminated. The Philistines are sick to their stomach with these people. So they call out this massive army. There are chariots and horsemen by the thousands. Even the soldiers appear like sand on the seashore. It's like the reverse of God's promise to Abraham. And if it sounds overwhelming, it's because that's the point. The Philistines are intent on ending this once and for all. And the response in Israel is terror. Look at verses 6 and 7. Fear spreads rapidly. The people hide. Caves, holes, wells, even tombs. Anywhere they can escape this gathering horde. Some people even flee the land. They cross over the Jordan River going back to the eastern side. It's like an undoing of the conquest. They're, they're fleeing the land. And where is Saul while this fear spreads? Where is he? Verse 7, he's still at Gilgal. And the people with him are trembling. In other words... Saul's presence is no help in stopping the spread of fear. So when we put all this together, what we get is a troubling triumph. Yes, Jonathan has won a victory for God's people, but in the midst of that victory, there's enough trouble to give us pause and to leave us wondering, how will Saul respond? Is he up to this task? The question of Saul's response then brings us to the second scene, which is the heart of the passage. We're going to spend most of our time here. In verses 8 to 15, we see a disastrous decision. A disastrous decision. Now, to understand this scene, we have to remind ourselves of something that happened earlier, back in chapter 10. You'll remember Samuel gave Saul a clear Direct instruction. There was no doubt about it. Saul was to gather the people at Gilgal, and then he was supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to come. And at that point, Samuel would show Saul what to do. Friends, that's the key to understanding this horrible situation. Samuel was supposed to come and Saul was supposed to wait for him. Even though Saul is Israel's king, the Lord is still Israel's God. He rules over his people, including the king, and the Lord's authority comes through his word. This is why Samuel commanded Saul to wait. Saul cannot act on his own. He must submit himself to God's authority by waiting to hear from God's word spoken by God's prophet. This is all about the authority of God through his word. That's what this entire scene is about. So, with that background in mind, we're ready to consider Saul's Actions and clearly things don't go well here. One commentator has called this a royal failure, and that's a good description. This is kingship derailed by disobedience. But it's not enough to simply say Saul disobeyed, that's true, but it fails to capture the gravity of his failure. There is this progression in Saul's actions. As he goes one step further each time, downward this horrible spiral. There's this progression that helps us understand not only Saul, but also the effect of sin in our own hearts. So notice with me how Saul spirals down this road of disobedience. There's three kind of distinct levels here. First off, Saul treats God's Word as unnecessary. Treats God's Word as unnecessary. Look at verse 8. Saul waited seven days, just as Samuel had instructed, but for some reason the prophet has not yet arrived. What is Saul to do? Well, he takes matters into his own hands. Saul offers the sacrifices himself. Now, the problem is not that Saul offers the sacrifices. Some some people would say that because Saul is the king and not a priest, he was not authorized to do this. But, King David in 2 Samuel 24 and King Solomon in 1 Kings 3 offered these same sacrifices. And they didn't get in trouble. So the issue's not the sacrifices. Saul's failure is actually much more serious. It's that he took a step of action without hearing from God's Word. Friends, that's the entire reason why Saul was to wait for Samuel. Saul needed to hear what God would say. He needed to receive God's strategy for the battle. He needed to spend time underneath the wisdom of God before he tried to lead the people he was tasked with leading. But by offering the sacrifices himself, Saul is in a sense saying to God, I don't need Your Word. I don't even need You. I can handle this myself. Friends, how easily and how often do we find ourselves right there alongside Saul? We face moments in life where all of the circumstances demand that something be done. The pressure keeps mounting. So we take action without ever stopping to consider the wisdom of the Scriptures. We act as though God's Word is actually unnecessary. In fact, I'm afraid that at times we live as though the Bible were just any other book. I was convicted by a question this week that came to me as I was preparing. I want to ask the question to you. If people were to watch how you lived on a day in, day out basis, would they conclude that the Word of God was essential to your life, or would they conclude that it was actually unnecessary? Think about that, brothers and sisters. Is the wisdom of God in His Word like your daily food? Is it like an indispensable light in the darkness? Or do we treat it like something we could take or leave depending upon how pressed we are at the moment? Friends, I know it seems small, but this is how Saul's failure began. By treating God's Word as unnecessary. And so the path of wisdom would call us to examine our lives to see whether or not that might be true of us. That's the first step. But sadly, Saul's not finished. His second descent down actually compounds the first. He justifies his disobedience. Saul justifies his disobedience. Notice what happens in verse 10. As soon as Saul offers the sacrifice, Samuel arrives. It seems Saul had waited into the seventh day, but not the entire day. So he's kind of close to obeying. And of course, Samuel wonders what's going on. So he asks Saul for an explanation. Now, understand that at this point, Saul has the opportunity to confess what he has done. Did you catch that when we read? Samuel doesn't show up and just immediately start rebuking him. He shows up and asks a question. What have you done? Here is an opportunity to come clean. Here is an opportunity to cast himself on the mercy of God. Here's an opportunity to confess. And tragically, Saul chooses the path of foolishness. Notice verse 11. Saul claims his circumstances forced him to act. The people were fleeing. The Philistines were on the verge of striking. Never mind the fact that Gilgal is way far away from where they actually were. So, what else was Saul supposed to do? I mean, you can almost hear him saying to Samuel Listen, prophet, I didn't have time for all this faith and obedience talk, I had to get something done. You see, Saul has bought into the lie that circumstances determine whether or not an action is right or wrong. He's lost sight of the truth that disobedience is never justified, no matter how hard things get. In every season of life, the safest course of action is always obedience to God's Word. In fact, that's often what God is teaching us in the difficult seasons of life. Will you obey what I have said? Will you submit yourself to me? Here is safety underneath my word. Live here. It's hard, but it's safe. Incredibly, Saul has more excuses. He not only cites his circumstances, but he also shifts the blame. Look again at what Saul says in verse 11. When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. That you is emphatic in the original. Saul is pointing the finger at Samuel. Never mind the fact that Samuel has actually come. I mean, the truth is inconvenient when it comes to self-justification. If Saul has failed, then it is Samuel's fault. Now, do you hear what this sounds like? This sounds like the Garden of Eden. Is this not how Adam responded when the Lord confronted his sin? The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Adam shifted the blame. Now Saul follows in Adam's footsteps because this is how sin works. It blinds us to the truth, but then it also leads us to twist the truth to our advantage. So that every fact becomes actually advantageous to me. Listen, friends, I don't know everything each person here is facing, but I do know human nature well enough to conclude that we all, in some way or another, struggle with justifying our disobedience. I've lost track of the number of times I've lashed out at my children and then told myself it was because they weren't listening. As though it somehow excuses my failure. And that's just one example. So this, this... This situation is not unique to Saul. This tendency to justify stalks each of us in various ways because this is what sin does. And we're in a war against sin. And so we need to know our enemy. This is what sin does, friends. And that means there are two takeaways here for us from Saul's self-justification. There's two things that we should not miss. One, we need to beware our tendency to make excuses. We need to beware our tendency to make excuses. Don't leave any room, friends, for self-justification. It never works. Be ruthless in refusing to excuse your sin. And develop the kind of friendships that won't let you do that either. We need to beware our tendency to make excuses. And along with that vigilance, we need to remember the blessing of confession. We need to remember the blessing of confession. Oh, how different things might have been had Saul confessed his sin and cast himself on the mercy of God. Friends, if you know there is some disobedience you've been excusing, then I plead with you this morning to confess it. When Samuel comes to Saul and says, what have you done? That same scenario is happening right now. The Lord is saying, what have you done? Tell me. Confess. Come clean. Own the reality of how you have failed. Own all of those pathetic self-justifications. And then take refuge in the truth that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Saul justified his disobedience, but by God's grace, we don't have to follow in that heartache. There is blessing in confession, for it brings God's forgiveness to the soul. So confess. One more level down for Saul. Treats God's word as unnecessary, justifies his disobedience. And then here at the end, Saul reaps a bitter consequence. Look again at verse 13. Samuel has heard enough, and his reply is a stinging rebuke. Notice what he says to Saul. You have done foolishly. In the Bible, one of the worst things you can be called is a fool. A fool is someone who ignores God's ways in order to follow his own. A fool is someone who thinks he can figure life out based on his own wisdom. A fool is someone who hears God's clear word, but then disregards it thinking that he knows better than God. And that's what Saul has done. Saul knew the standard, he heard the commandment to obey God's word, and foolishly, Saul ignored what God said. In fact, Notice how Samuel begins and ends his rebuke by highlighting Saul's disobedience. It's like bookends. The beginning of verse 13, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. And then the end of verse 14, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Again, friends, do you see the connection? Saul's failure wasn't just about sacrifices. He's a fool because he ignored and then disobeyed God's Word. And for that, Saul reaps a bitter consequence. Notice what Samuel says at the end of verse 13. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So, Saul's line will end. There will be no dynasty for Saul and his family. Instead, God will raise up another king. And what will set this king apart from Saul? The new king will be a man after God's own heart. You see, that's the ultimate tragedy in Saul's life. That's the bottom of his spiral, in other words. His disobedience, his foolishness, all of those things are symptoms of a heart that is far from God. Friends, I hope we see here the sobering reminder of how, how serious sin is. I know it's a heavy chapter. But this is why we preach through the Bible. So that we hear all of God's counsel to us. I hope we see what a sobering reminder this is about the seriousness of sin. I mean, if you think about it, on one level, Saul's failure doesn't seem all that bad. At least not compared to other sins we see in the Bible. At least not compared with other sins that even David will commit. I mean, Saul did wait the seven days, did he not? And at least he was trying to offer sacrifices to God. Wasn't that good enough? Why does God bring such a harsh punishment for such a seemingly little sin? Because there are no little sins, there is no close enough. You see, this whole idea of little sins is misguided because it starts at the wrong place. It starts by comparing our sin with the sin of others. But that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible defines sin in relationship to God. And since God is perfect, there is no little sin. You can be a millimeter away or a mile away, it's all bad. Every sin is an outright, full-throated assault on the authority, the holiness, the majesty, and the goodness of God. Every sin, no matter how small it seems to us, deserves God's infinite wrath. Every sin deserves hell. Friends, I wonder this morning if we might need our perspective adjusted when it comes to breaking God's commandments when it comes to the issue of sin. Maybe you're a Christian this morning, but lately you've given little thought to holiness. You know there are areas of your life where you are going against God's Word, but you've been telling yourself at least it's not that bad. It's certainly not like so-and-so whose sin seems much worse than mine. Friend, if that sounds like you, then this moment from Saul's life should get your attention. There are no little sins. There's just you and the holy God. There are no little sins. And this morning, the Lord is coming to you like Samuel came to Saul and He's saying, what have you done? He's calling you to a renewed pursuit of holiness. A renewed desire to obey God's Word in what we might consider the small things. And remember friend, friends, obedience is defined by the small things. Nobody obeys God in the big things while ignoring the little. Will you listen to him? Will you listen to him and learn there is blessing in confession? Bring it to the Lord. Or maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You know you're not a Christian. And all of this talk about breaking God's commandments seems silly to you because you're not even sure if there is a God. What's more, you're not a bad person, so you think. So why should you be worried about knowing this God? Surely there are worse people and worse problems out there than you. You watch the news, there's bad people doing bad stuff. Friend, if that's you today, then I would ask you to consider making just one shift in your self-evaluation. Instead of comparing yourself to other people, consider how you measure up against perfection. Because that's the standard. You see, we're all brought low under that standard. We're all failing when compared with God. But that's where the Bible starts. We have to see ourselves as sinners first before we can see the good news of God's grace and His forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, the question to you then is, will you humble yourself under God's Word and admit that you don't measure up? Will you humble yourself under God's word and admit that what you need most desperately today is forgiveness? Oh, I pray that you would. Pray that the Spirit would give you eyes to see. Well, I told you the second scene was the heart of the passage. It truly is a disastrous decision. But it's one that we can learn from if we will humble ourselves to hear what God teaches in His Word. That leaves us with the last scene, number three, and we'll close with this. In verses 16 to 23, we see a powerless position. A powerless position. You'll notice Samuel leaves in verse 15, which means Saul gets what he asked for. He's on his own. He doesn't have the guidance or the wisdom of God's Word. With God's prophet leaves, then he takes God's Word with him. So Saul's on his own. And the outcome is anything but good. The chapter closes with Israel in a horribly weakened state. Notice just how powerless the people are. They are fewer in number. Look at the end of verse 15. Saul started with 3,000 fighting men. Now he's down to 600. That's not much of an army. What's more, the people are defenseless. Look at verses 17 and 18. The Philistines are sending out raiding parties in all directions. And there's no one there to stop them. If we were to map those place names in verse 17 and 18, it would be every direction in Israel. And that's the point. The Philistines are just free to pillage. They're just doing what they want. The people are defenseless. And then finally, the people have no way to fight back. Look at verses 19 to 23. The Philistines have a monopoly on blacksmiths, which means the Israelites don't have any weapons. And they ha- even have to go down there to get their tools sharpened, and they have to pay the Philistines. So they're paying for their own slavery. You put all that together, the chapter closes on a rather depressing note. God's people are fewer in number, they have no defenses, and they have no way to fight back. They are utterly powerless against their enemies. They're they're, they're powerless. It's, It's a sad and even despairing way for the chapter to end. There is, however, a reason for hope. But it doesn't come from Saul and it doesn't come from the people. It comes from God and the work that he continues to do. Look back at verse 14. Right in the middle of the stinging rebuke to Saul. Right there in the middle of the judgment, God is working. Isn't this how He works? He brings His salvation in the midst of judgment. Right there, God is working. He's raising up another king. A king after His own heart. And of course, we know this promise points us to David, whom God will anoint in just a few short chapters. But even then, God's work will go beyond David. You see, this promise here in verse 14 reminds us that this is what God is seeking in the world. Not just outward obedience, but obedience that flows from the heart. That's the kind of person that God wants. And that's the kind of leader that we need. We need a king who from beginning to end displays wholehearted obedience to God and to His Word. We need a king who will stand on the Word of God regardless of how trying the temptation is. And centuries after Saul, that obedient king would come. But surprisingly, that promised king is not revealed in the luxury of a palace. He's revealed in a trial in the wilderness. For 40 days, a son of David, is assaulted by Satan who tempts him to turn from God's Word just like Saul did. And every time, this promised king answers with, it is written, it is written, it is written. Three times he stands upon God's Word. And it's in that faithful obedience in the wilderness when no one is watching except God It's in that faithful obedience that the true King is revealed. You see, we don't often think about Jesus' temptation as being about kingship, but it is. As Jesus obeys God's Word there in the wilderness, He reveals Himself to be the King after God's own heart. And therefore, brothers and sisters, there is reason for hope for God's people. There is reason for hope. Christ's obedience is the foundation of our salvation. He has obeyed God's Word to the full. And now through faith, Christ's obedience is counted to us. That's a stunning statement. That a sinner like me could be considered perfect in God's sight. How does that happen? Only through the obedience of Christ. What's more, Christ's obedience is also the source of our assurance Christ has conquered sin and now through His resurrection power, He is working to spread His righteous reign in our lives until we're all conformed to His image. Can you imagine such a day? No more foolishness. No more excuses. No more self-justification. No more disobedience. No more dark night of the soul. No more crushing despair that you just want to die. No more sin. Can you imagine that day? That day is coming, friends. That day is coming because God has given us a king. A king after his own heart. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love your people enough to tell them the truth about their desperate need for a Savior. We thank You, Father, that You love this world enough to proclaim the truth that sin destroys, that it leads to death, and that though it seems wise in the moment, it is always foolish. We thank You, Father, that You love the world enough to tell it the truth about the state of our souls. And we praise You, God, that You love Your church enough to send Your Son the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey in our place, to take our punishment, to rise again from the dead, and now to grant salvation to all who trust in His name. Father, help us to hold fast to Christ. Remind us that even as we seek to hold fast to Him, He is holding fast to us. We pray in His name. Amen.